Okay, so this is the only time in the New Testament that an, a Roman emperor is actually named. Isn't this incredible? This means it's a big deal. The only Roman emperor in all the New Testament is only named here. So something's going on. That's like, pay attention, pay attention. Uh, his name is Caesar Augustus. Well, who is Caesar Augustus? Caesar Augustus is actually not his real name. His real name was Octavian. But he became Caesar Augustus, which kind of shows his journey in life. Augustus was added later. It means majestic. It means holy. <laughs> so Octavius became the, the majestic one and the holy one, right? Uh, his, he's the nephew of Julius Caesar. You ever heard of that guy? So Julius Caesar was assassinated by a guy named Brutus, right? Ette Brute, right? Was that you, Brutus, that just put a knife in my back? Here's the nephew. The nephew was so shocked. The nephew was so traumatized by the assassination of his, of his uncle. He became obsessed with taking out Brutus. So he joins with Mark Anthony. Heard of that name? And they team up together at Philippi in 42 B.C. And they destroy Brutus. And then ten years, not but nine years later, he then turns against his ally, Mark Anthony, who's now joined with Cleopatra, and he meets them on the battlefield at the legendary epic Battle of Actium. If you've watched Gladiator, that's what they reproduce in the Gladiator scene in there, if you remember that movie. Uh, so now, right now, he rules the world. Right now, he's the majestic one. The Holy One. Now I want you to look at verses 1 and 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration. I would like the literal translation better because the literal translation says this was the first census. Now, census is a trigger word in the Bible. If a, an Israelite was reading this, they, it would trigger PTSD in their life because census in the Old Testament was never a good thing. When someone did a census, bad things happened. Satan did a census. All the kings of Israel that ever attempted a census against God's instruction, like King David, wrecked themselves, wrecked relationships, and wrecked their kingdom. And they did things like this. Censuses were taken in the Old Testament for the king to count his greatness, not God's. For a king to measure his majesty, not God's majesty. For a king to mark out his self-kingdom, not God's kingdom. So you see, there's all these little lights that are going on in the text. The intelligent reader's like, hmm, something's afoot. Then you got this little nice thing that I found when I was doing the historical background. I love doing the historical background on Tuesdays. I, it's one of my favorite parts of studying the scripture. There were Roman legends circling Octavius, who Caesar Augustus at the time, and it's inscribed in architecture. The historians jotted them down. And here was the epic legend about his birth. It was a miraculous birth. Sound familiar? Oh, but what could be so miraculous about this guy's birth? What would be worth, like, mentioning? What would be worth, like, writing down? What would be worth etching in architecture to this very day? Here it is. Are you ready? He was conceived by a serpent. I'm not making this up. And so for some reason, that was good news in the ancient world. For some reason, that was a, anybody conceived by a serpent that, whoa, the Israelites are freaking out. 
Of course he's conceived by a serpent. Inscriptions at the time reported, quote, this is what they said about his birth. His birth signaled the beginning of good news for the world. His birth signaled gospel for the world, literally. Other inscriptions from historical documents and architecture called him God, Lord, the Son of God, and Savior of the world. In other words, if you were to look at verse 10, these are the exact same titles given to Jesus. The exact. So there are... Here's what's happening. What's the point of all this? Why is Caesar Augustus the only Roman emperor that's named in the whole New Testament? Because he's the first Roman emperor to claim he's the Savior of the world. He's the first Roman emperor to say, I'm the Lord of the world. He's the first Roman emperor that says, I bring peace to the world. Do you know what he called it? Pax Romana, Roman peace. And so Caesar Augustus in this text is telling you how peace happens, how you find peace. And his answer is peace is something you achieve. And I achieved it for the whole world. Social psychologist uh, Daniel Kahneman wrote uh, a book called Thinking Fast and Slow in 2010. It won the Nobel Prize. It was a landmark study. And this is what he writes. There's a notion out there that self-awareness is a form of salvation or peace. That if we know more about our mental mistakes, we can avoid them. But it turns out self-knowledge is surprisingly useless. Even when we know why we stumble, we still find a way to fall. He was so courageous, he was so brave that he admitted that of the years, he studied decades of research, groundbreaking research, Nobel Prize winning author and research. He was so brave, so courageous, he said that all this research, all these years of researching have not performed have not improved my own mental performance, have not given me inner peace. He says, my intuitive thinking, do you know what that is? My intuitive thinking, that means my thinking that's spontaneous, my thinking that's instantaneous, my thinking that's involuntary, my thinking that goes on in those regions that I can't touch deep in me, that I can't reach in and choose it, I can't reach in and will it, I can't reach in and change it. I can't reach in and tinker with it. My intuitive thinking, he says, is just as prone to overconfidence. It's a nice word of saying pride, arrogance, superiority, self-importance, measure your majesty, mark your own kingdom. Extreme predictions, you know what that means? That's just nice. Isn't that nice? But you know what the Bible would say? That's called being a false prophet. That's spinning a reality that doesn't exist. We spin a reality about people called gossip and slander. We spin a reality about church. We spin a reality about work. We spin a reality about our home. We spin a reality about our kids. It's called catastrophic thinking. It's a way to try to control your life. 
And then he says one other thing that's intuitive. It's just as prone to overconfidence, extreme predictions, and poor planning as it was before I made the study of these issues. So here you have an expert on the inner life, an expert on mental health, an expert on psychology, an expert on the human person, on the self. He's a Nobel Prize winning research. And contrary to what Augustus says, Caesar Augustus, contrary to popular belief today, he says peace is not something you achieve. He's not a Christian. He doesn't read his Bible. He just says human experience is conclusive. Human experience is, has a, a statement. It proves universally peace is not something you can achieve. So, focusing on what you can control cannot achieve peace. Spending time in nature cannot achieve peace. Being true to yourself cannot achieve peace. Minding what you eat cannot achieve peace. Exercising regularly cannot achieve peace. Doing good deeds cannot achieve peace. Being assertive cannot achieve peace. Meditating cannot achieve peace. Avoiding trying to change others cannot achieve peace. Financial control cannot achieve peace. Getting what you want cannot achieve peace. Being liked cannot achieve peace. Being important cannot achieve peace. Being significant cannot achieve peace. Having fun and having friends cannot achieve peace. Having the right political party, the right political ideology, having the right man in the Oval Office or woman cannot achieve peace. Being the number one military power, superpower in the world cannot achieve peace. Nine ways, 40 ways, 20 ways cannot achieve peace. And the number one way today in our psychological world, self-awareness, self-understanding, think Enneagram, cannot achieve peace. Why? I mean, why, really? Why, why can't we achieve peace? Why peace is something we cannot achieve, I want you to look at verses 1 through 7, and then I want you to look at verses 8 through 21. So if you are an apprentice, you're going to love this. So this is what's really incredible. In verses 1 through 7, this is just for the apprentices out there, the less of you, you can just listen in. Verses 1 through 7 is the history of the text. It's the, it's the event of the text. Verses 8 through 21 is the interpretation of the text. It's the message of the text. Do you see how this works? The Bible is always about events, divine events that happen. And then the Bible comes in and God says, but I'm not going to let you interpret them because if you interpret them, you'll mess it up every time. When he did it, when he parted the Red Sea, he had the Israelites and Moses there and they parted the Red Sea and the Israelites went, wow, what weather, what a tide, right? And God said, Moses, will you please tell them what this means? And Moses tells them what this means. You follow Jesus' life, and he's doing all kinds of things, and everyone's trying to interpret him, right? The crowds interpret him. Eh. The disciples try to interpret him. Eh. And then while he's dying, an event, he's dying, a warrior, a Roman centurion finally gets it right. You want to know how the Bible's structured? you got the Gospels giving you the events. 
you got the New Testament letters telling you what they mean. That's why Paul's so important. That's why Romans is so important. That's why Ephesians is so important. Because they're giving you the divine interpretation, the divine message of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and his reigning ascension. So back to the text. 1 through 7 is the event of Jesus' birth. Look at verse 1. It's real clear. In those days. This is straight-up history, right? It's a clear historical record of Jesus' birth. I want you to look at verse 5. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. They're not married. She's pregnant. This is like as scandalous as you can get in a religious culture. If you were starting a religion, this is the kind of stuff you would just nicely omit. You would not have it in your historical record. But if it's true history and it's being documented, you know what we would call Jesus? Do you know what he was called his whole life? It's a B word, but it's not the one for women. How would you like that? God is called up. That's what's happening here. That's history. That's indisputable. And so what's also happening here is two parallel histories of two kings. Caesar, Augustus, the majestic one, the holy one. And then who's this other king who comes in so scandalous, who comes in so weak, who comes in so unassuming, who comes in, is he the ruler of the world? Two kings, two lords, two saviors, two solutions and paths for peace. We've seen one already. Caesar Augustus and all of us, we're always trying to achieve peace. Always trying to achieve peace. Right now, you are trying to achieve peace in areas of your life. Guaranteed. What kind of peace is the child's? Well, how are we going to know? Well, we're not going to figure it out because God's not going to leave it up to you to actually interpret what he does. So he's going to give you 8 through 21 to tell you what this piece is. He's going to give you 8 through 21 to give you a divine interpretation of a divine event. Now we're going to get the divine interpretation of the birth of Jesus. And notice again that this is a divine interpretation. That's why when it happens, when the interpretation's about ready to happen, the glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds. It's the same divine light that struck Saul, who became Paul, knocks him to the ground, completely obliterates the folks that are with him. They fall to the ground and blinds him. This is the presence of the Lord. This is God saying, listen, this is my interpretation. This is what the birth of this child means. I don't care what you think it means. I don't care what Caesar thinks it means. I don't care what the person who... They went to, and they went from house to house. When they went from house to house, it's not a literal inn. You had a house. Each house had three rooms. One was where the family slept. One was where the animals were put in at night, and the other was for guests. There were no room of guest rooms in all that town. I don't care, God says, what you thought was taking place when you saw this unmarried, pregnant, scandalous couple coming into town. And that's why you have the angel interpreting 
the first time, the first one that ushers good news, the first one that says gospel, the first one that says good news is an angel. I bring you good news. Heavenly interpretation. That's why an army of angels, it's a little army. That's what the word literally means. Multitude is an army. So the the best trained army in the cosmos, the most fierce army ever made comes in and sings the meaning of the birth. And they don't come for war. They come for peace. And that's why the shepherds say when they take this all in, they're going back and they, they don't say, yeah, the things that the angel taught us. What do they say? The things God told us. The things God showed us. Divine interpretation. So what is the divine interpretation? What's the divine message about the divine event of Jesus' birth. Are you ready? Here's the answer. Peace is received, not achieved. Peace is received, not achieved. Verse 13, and suddenly there was a there was with an angel, the angel, a multitude, an army of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he's pleased. What that means is it's, it's glory to God in highest and peace on earth on graced people. In other words, people that get their weak, people that get their need, people that know it's only by graced, graced people, that's it. People that know they have no faith, people that know their lives are messed up, people that know they are pregnant and they're not married. This is breathtaking because two things are happening in this song at the same time. Two things are happening simultaneously, instantaneously in two different places. So when God made the world, he made the world with an invisible world called the heavens and a visible world called the earth. And they are mixed and everywhere. None's not above the other. These are two worlds. And in Ephesians, we're going to, I can't wait, we're going to be like exploring a lot of what those worlds are. But that's where some of the crazy stuff that goes on in the world that people are like, oh, are those aliens? Are those ghosts? Well, there could be another answer. And we'll explore that later. So you have two things happening in, in all of creation, the heavens and the earth simultaneously, but they're different. Glory fills heaven, peace invades earth. This is breathtaking. So don't miss this. Do you want to know what God's like? Do you want to know what makes him tick? Do you want to know what his heart Do you want to know what turns the cosmos, what moves creation, why he created? If we were to say the first question is, what's the chief end of man? We all say to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. Fantastic. What's the chief end of God? To glorify himself and enjoy himself forever. Fantastic. Well, what gives glory to heaven? What gives glory to God? Here it is, giving you peace. giving you peace. That's who God is. If you think he's out to get you, you don't know him. If you 
break because he loves you and gives you peace, you're just beginning to know him. If you break as a parent for your kids, you're just beginning to know him. Glory fills heaven, peace invades earth simultaneously. Don't miss this. Jesus' birth achieves peace. We don't. Peace is received, not achieved. Except Jesus is the one that achieved it, not us. So that's why it's received. So the moment Jesus was born, peace invaded the world. The moment Jesus was born, peace came into the world. The moment Jesus was born, peace broke into this world. This means peace is received, not achieved. And it's all wrapped up in that word gospel. You find that in verse 10. See that word gospel, find it. If you have a pen, pencil, you should like put a box around it, underline it. I mean, this is like a really, really good word. This word is actually not a word that the Bible invented. This is actually a word that was used in the ancient world, and it had a very distinct meaning. It had a distinct meaning of a hero who does something for you that you cannot do for yourself. That's why it's good news, because it's never achieved by you. It's only received free because a hero achieves it for you. This is why the angel says, look, I bring you good news of great joy. Okay, great. Okay, whoa, what is this? Four. God's in the grammar. See the four? Underline it. Four is telling you the reason for the good news. Four is telling you the reason for the great joy to you. Four is giving you the grounds, the source, the fuel, the drive. How it happens. Here it is. I bring you good news of great joy. For unto you is born this day a Savior, a hero for you. The angel is saying, peace has been done for you. Peace has been achieved for you. And the intelligent reader is going, but how? How has peace been done for me? How has peace been achieved for me? And the text says, how? By the birth of a child. By the birth of a hero. So now what do you do? If he did it, if he accomplished it, if he achieved it, what do you do? You receive it. The shepherds receive it. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, notice the angels just didn't go away. The angels, like, whatever they did, because heaven's not above, below, or it, they just went wherever that place is. But they're interdependent worlds. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, this is great, the shepherds said to one another, the, the verb tense makes the meaning go like this. They couldn't stop talking about it to one another. They were just blah, 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 the whole way. Blah, blah. I mean, they could not. It was instantaneous. It was involuntary. It had captured their soul great joy. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Do you see it? There it is. It's right there for us. Do you see it? It says, let us go to see this thing that what? Has already happened. What are we going to go see? Something that's already happened. 
What are we going to go do? We're going to go and do and look and see something that's already achieved. Something that's already done. Something that's already accomplished. What's already achieved? What's already done? What's already finished? What's done? The birth of a hero. The birth of a savior. Peace on earth. Peace has come. Peace is received, not achieved. So here's the question. Why are you trying to achieve peace? Because right now you are in some place in your life. So you might as well just like think about it right now, even though you don't want to. Where are you trying to achieve peace? Now, you got it? You got that place? At that place, receive peace instead. At that place that you are desperately trying to achieve peace, receive it instead. So in other words, receive it where you don't feel it. Receive peace where you're depressed. Receive peace where you're in relational conflict. Receive peace where you're mean, where you're insecure, where you worry all the time. Receive peace where you catastrophize and spin your false prophecies. Receive peace where you're so full of shame because of what people have done to you. Receive peace where you have these impulses that you cannot control. Receive peace there. Stop trying to achieve it there. The birth of Jesus achieved your peace. The birth of Jesus is your peace. So receive it. Look at verse 21. Here's how we're going to end. This is a strange verse in a strange place. It's a stranger thing. It's so out of place in the birth of Jesus story that nobody really knows what to do with 21. If you look at the ESV, 21 is stuck in the birth of Jesus storyline. But other Bibles, other translations stick it in the temple storyline because nobody knows what to do with it. You look at scholars and commentaries, everybody's like, this is just weird. Where do you... Well, let's place it up. Everybody places it in two different places. It's a stranger thing. It just sits there in the middle, and nobody knows what to do with it. Let's look at it. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel Gabriel before he was conceived in the womb. What does circumcision have to do with Jesus' birth? I mean, that's just like, oh, oh, I don't, do I have to think about it? I mean, what do I do with this? Theologian Mike Horton, which I said this in the first service, I want to say it in the second service. If you, need one, if you need one theologian, one systematic theologian, that you need to have a systematic theology, you want his. Most theologies are written very abstract theology. It's very clinical. It's very, oh, the doctrine of God. Oh, the, the best theologies take biblical theology, which is the storyline of the Bible, and weave it with the major themes and characters, what's called systems of theology, and they weave them together. His book is about this big. It could be a great weapon. It can be a great window opener, whatever you want to use it for. 
But if you need one theology, that's the one you want to get. Here's what he says. He explains circumcision, the significance of circumcision in Israel this way. In Israel, the shedding of blood began with circumcision. Yeah, we got that. Thank you. Which was a partial cutting off. We got that too. Of the flesh. We got that. Thank you. Why? To keep the whole person from being sacrificed. Didn't see that one coming. In other words, because of sin's dark hold on you, because of sin's dark hold, the dark power called the sin on the world and every human being that lives from the moment they're conceived, because of sin's dark hold, there was a partial cutting off of the flesh in order to save the whole person. So, Jesus' partial circumcision here on the eighth day points to his whole body circumcision on the cross for you. Jesus' partial circumcision here on the eighth day points to his whole self being cut off for you. There is now peace. comprehensive wholeness, universal healing. Because everything bad in you, around you, coming at you was cut off at the cross for you. Everything that steals your peace. And then everything that's good, as Paul would say, every spiritual blessing Everything good is given to you at the birth of this son. The birth of Jesus achieved your peace. The birth of Jesus is your peace. So receive it. <laughs>